We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today, wherever you listen to podcasts. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. What's next? How do you keep this momentum going for the season whenever it comes? Well, Channing, you know, because you and I were together in Portland, what that's like. Uh, When you're changing a culture and you're starting to win games, that next step is a lot harder. And I can remember when we had all of you young guys um, in Portland, uh, we added, you know, Andre Miller and James Jones and Jawan Howard. And those were the right moves for us because the culture didn't change, but it brought a level of professionalism and consistency and we brought experience. And so... We know that we're going to have to make good decisions going forward, and James is already working on that. Um, I think for me, it's getting our guys to understand that this next step is a bigger step, and it's going to take a lot more work. Um, And we got to continue to do what we've done, and we can't get drunk off of this success. Um, this This has been cool, but the reality is we're not in Orlando, and that should hurt our guys in a good way. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast, back again with part two of our 
prospective future playoffs conversation. A lot to talk about this week, including getting to what we teased you with last week. My name is Mike. I'm here, as always, with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? I am doing well and uh, ready for part two of this conversation, which I actually think we didn't plan too much last week, and I thought it, it turned out surprisingly well, so we'll, we'll see what we come up with this time. I mean, the playoffs are so fascinating, just watching the way the game changes and, and what players are effective <laughs> and what players aren't. There's so much that comes to mind when thinking, picturing these guys in those roles. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, like I, I saw a decent amount of Suns fans online with the take. I agree with you, by the way. I saw a decent amount of Suns fans online with the take of like, yeah, I don't know about you guys, but like as a Suns fan, I just don't give a shit about these teams playing right now. And and you know what? Like I respect that too. Um, but I, yeah, my love of basketball just goes beyond yeah. Phoenix. So like it's just right. natural for me to want to watch these games, right. um, at least the games I can watch. I obviously can't yeah. watch all of them. Um, but just I've, watch the games I can watch and break some of it down at least. I was lost today without a single game on. <laughs> I did not know what to do with myself. Yeah, what was it? It was like the first time in, I don't know, a month and a, a half. A few months, but I feel yeah. like without, without a single a game. game. And usually it was multiple games starting at like noon Arizona time, which was fantastic because I could just have it on in the background all day long. But yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. Like football just started. The NFL just started. And I'll watch the Cardinals, but I... I won't really watch any other football games. And I guess that's how a lot of Suns fans are with the Suns. Yeah. Uh, but with the NBA, right. we're, I mean, we talk about it every week, so we have to have a good understanding of where the NBA is at. And I just find it fun. I, I think it's I the way it changes is fascinating and different. So I, I enjoy that a lot. Uh, we do have some news to talk about before we get to that. That's kind of interesting. I'm not... I, I have conflicting <laughs> feelings about this. Is it interesting to, or... Well, I think it is, and here's why. Okay, so Darko Ryakovich is leaving the Phoenix Suns. This was an assistant coach who, for some reason, made some headlines. Like, it was one of the assistant coaches that we actually talked about this season. It's not common that we, that you and I, particularly, uh, even discuss assistant coaches, but he was one of the guys that uh, was quoted talking about Dario Saric being one of the first point centers, you know, obviously some shade to Jokic for some reason. Uh, he also was a guy credited with helping Mikhail Bridges out with his shot. And there was a great podcast to him talking about the 0.5 system, which we talked about a little bit and, and told people to listen to on this podcast. So he's a guy that we've talked about a lot and he's gone. He's leaving. He's going to join Memphis, which is already, I have conflicted feelings about that. <laughs> uh, one, I like him and I think he'll do well there Two. There's just this weird Phoenix-Memphis thing going on now because of the guys that were picked and the guys that were traded between teams. Uh, what are your first thoughts about Darko leaving? Uh, well, he was my favorite assistant coach, you know, coming from the perspective of a fan who doesn't have locker room access. So, you know, take everything I say with a grain right. of salt. But he was my favorite assistant coach to track this year. And like you said, he, he made some appearances and headlines that were interesting. And yeah, overall, I thought he, I mean... The tough thing about evaluating it is, you know, we, we hear him talk about a point five offense um, on a podcast. That doesn't necessarily mean it was him instilling those principles in players. Right. So we really can't say one way or the other. But um, I was very impressed every time I heard Darko speak. And he's a guy who has a good track record now. He, he spent maybe five or six years as an assistant at this point, both with OKC, um, where he worked with Monty Williams a few years back and now with uh, his one year in Phoenix. So, you know, he's a guy who's in his early 40s. He's got a long way to go. But honestly, the way I heard him talk, 
um, about the Suns offense and the offensive principles throughout the course of the year. This was a guy where I was like, you know, maybe 10 years from now, he throws his hat in the ring as a coaching candidate somewhere. You know, it takes you a long time when you're an assistant coach, especially if Igor Kokoshkov taught us anything when you're a foreign born assistant coach. uh, It takes you a long time to get an opportunity in the NBA. It took Igor something like 20 years. Um, But yeah, that's that was my general impression of him is I thought he could be Monty's elite assistant for a long time, maybe. And um, and now he's gone. So, yeah, it's it's definitely unfortunate. But I can't, you know, I just can't tell people. I can't freak out about it and, and say right. with any certainty that this is a, no. a massive loss. Right. And and what matters is, is first of all, if they replace... Because here's, here's the real thing that stuck out to me, the part that bothered me the most about this. This is the third assistant coach that is now gone right. in this offseason. Steve Blake, and I forget who the other one uh, is, is gone. And, like, for a team that had five coaches in five years five head coaches in five years. Now to have the first year with a head coach assigned to a longer deal, the one that feels like he's going to be around for a while, to have three assistant coaches gone. It seems like the, possibly the other two were fired, which is what it is. There could be reasons they were fired, but another one being gone in, in, in the same offseason is concerning. When a team does well, the head coach gets all of the credit. When a team does bad, the head coach gets a lot of the blame. But ultimately... Anytime a team is succeeding, it's because of a coaching staff. There's multiple people that do well to coach the team up. And uh, the idea of one of those guys that seems to be a really smart, effective coach leaving is concerning. What matters is that they do fill these roles. I don't want them to go down in assistant coaches just because Robert Sarver wants to save extra money. Mm-hmm. Mind you, there's no cap on the coaches, right? The coaches can make whatever you, whatever you want them to make. You can fire them for any reason. You can shrink or grow the staff for any reason. There's no requirement on how many assistant coaches there are going to be. So this is what we would consider the margins, a place that you can save money. That's what I'm concerned with. I don't want to see him using this as an opportunity to save money by not hiring more co- more coaches to right. replace it just because he doesn't understand the effectiveness of those coaches. Right. So that's what I'm concerned with the most. I think he's a smart guy. I think it's a loss. And, you know, but like like I said with a lot of this, I don't know. Like, we don't really know. We're just going by the information that's provided to us, which is not much. As we know, these guys interact with the players constantly. And I just hope that they replace him with someone effective. Well, yeah, I think what you touched on a second ago is the critical point. Um, the guy they brought in... And I don't know if this was just unfortunate timing or or if this is actually going to be Darko's replacement, but they brought in Brian Randall to be an assistant Mm -hmm. coach. Brian Randall was a player development coach with Minnesota for the past couple of years. Um, Actually, he was a scout for one year, and then he was a player development coach this past season. For what it's worth, I looked it up to see if there were any articles directly linking him to working with Carl Anthony Towns, um, and I could not find anything. I was just curious about that. I Um, did too. Yeah. I look for photos. (laughs) <laughs> right. I looked, for, I looked for photos, too. I couldn't find any. But he is several years younger than Ryakovich earlier in his career. This is his first promotion to being an assistant coach. Darko had been an assistant coach for a couple of years. Um, and I, again, no reports that Randall specifically is replacing Darko. But if he is, I think you can kind of connect the dots and say Darko took a higher paying position in Memphis and Phoenix is replacing him with 
probably cheaper labor as a guy who's going to be a first time assistant coach promoted from a player development position. Typically, uh, the guys who fill the player development roles sit further back on the bench and are and are younger and earlier in their careers. Um, and as you become an assistant coach, you you get promotions and mm-hmm. a higher salary that comes with that. So, yeah, I, I think what you were saying a second ago makes a lot of sense. This could and again, this is all just speculation, but it could be a way uh, that Sarver is cutting costs. And yeah. I think how that relates to our conversation more generally about the offseason is, does it ring any alarms for us about the overall approach that the team is going to take uh, with roster building and, and mm-hmm. team management in that sense? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, to note why we even consider this. Look at all of the coaches that have come along in Robert Sarver since he really started really taking control of the team sort of at the tail end of the Steve Nash era and beyond, a lot of them were sort of younger first time guys that you have the ability of signing to shorter contracts and pay less because it is their uh, opportunity to be successful. And this is something that if you know anything about Robert Sarver, as we do, you know that there has been stories written where he has gone on the record saying that this has been a successful business strategy for him in the banking world where, where he'll hire younger upstart people, pay them slightly less, but give them the opportunity, and they're hungry, they want it more. Now, I want to say, Brian Randall, it seems like people really like him. People have said a lot of really great things about him. I have a feeling he's going to do well in this role, but it does sort of fill (laughs) exactly what we've known about what Robert Sarver has done with coaches in the past. Now, we have no idea if that's the case. We don't know if they're going to bring in other assistant coaches to fill the role that have more experience. We have no idea. And I'm sure he'll be successful, but I think there's just a track record here that makes it a little bit worrying, and that makes me concerned. It might be nothing, but, I mean, it might be something, and we'll see going forward. And and just like you said, where can they save money? They can save money by not going above the luxury or above the uh, the, the overall cap to pay extra money they, they don't have to go over the cap right so maybe they don't do that maybe they don't go after big name free agents and and pay them a little extra money uh you know those are the type of things that we're going to be monitoring to just sort of understand what robert sarver is going to do in a time where he's likely losing money that it's just that's the truth of it and we have to monitor mm-hmm. that i guess mm-hmm. but it seems like brian randall uh is one of those guys even though he's young it seems like people always considered him as somebody that was going to sort of move up the ranks in this coaching uh, tree that exists and good for him. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited. He's on, on the, uh, on the staff just from what people have said about him. So I'm sure he'll be successful for sure. Um, I wish, wish him the best. Yeah. Any other thoughts on these coaches or anything changing here? Uh, no, I, I think we've spent enough time talking, speculating about assistant coaches. I'm excited to talk about, uh, like you said, we're going to get into the playoffs in a second. Well, we're going to get into how the playoffs relate to Suns players in a second. The part that I'm interested in talking about really quickly, and I don't know if you are as mm. interested as I am, is as teams get eliminated, this happens every year. Mm-hmm. Um, as teams get eliminated, there are more and more superstars supposedly on the trade market. Mm. <laughs> are you ready to talk about this? I, okay. told, you we, I told you we have to. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For the record, he's he's referring to Giannis. Giannis is and not is, just Giannis, mm-hmm. but but yeah. Let's start with Giannis. I want to I, I want to get your take on it. I think that Giannis is fully in control over where he gets traded if he gets traded, and that means he won't come to the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, that's the only that's the only reasonable take. 
Yeah. And yeah. and what I mean by that is is not necessarily that he wouldn't fit in and be really great on the sense. Like as far as like rosturbation goes, yeah, that's that's a fun thing to picture. Like that would be really fun in two K. <laughs> but the idea that the Suns can have one season that's considered a successful season and still be under 500 and still be owned by Robert Sarver. And now Giannis Antetokounmpo, who essentially has his choice to play for any team in the league because any team would make room for him is going to choose the Phoenix Suns is unlikely. And you might say, well, he's still under contract. Yes, he's still under contract. He still has another year under, under contract. But if he publicly says that he will not resign with the team, if he gets traded there, that team should not give up assets for him. And if you think that's not possible, that's not realistic, just think back to Anthony Davis because Anthony Davis could have been traded to the Boston Celtics. Now, Anthony Davis didn't have to say anything because what did his agent do? He had Anthony Davis's dad very publicly state I don't remember that this his son wow. will not play for the Boston Celtics <laughs> because of what they did to Isaiah Thomas. That was a play by the agent to tell the Boston Celtics to not trade for Anthony Davis, and he forced his way under contract to the team he wanted to go to in the Los Angeles Lakers. That's where Giannis is, that's what he'll do, and he's not going to choose the Suns. I would like him to, but the Suns, and I think he, I think he's right, and any star player is right to think this, the Suns need to have a track record of successful seasons year over year over year before a superstar, essentially in pre-agency, is going to choose them. I just think that's a fair thing for somebody like Giannis to want. And the idea that we're even discussing it is is kind of hilarious to me. Oh, well, I think so, too, because th- what I was going to say is even the idea, the notion that he's on the trade market in the first place, with right. the way that some people are, exactly. are talking about it. Like, let's say Milwaukee says there's a 99% chance in their internal discussions right now. They think there's a 99% chance that, that Giannis doesn't re-sign with them next year. If they put him on the trade market, there is literally no package that they could get in return. I don't care if they get like 12 first round picks. Right. I don't think there's anything that is equal value for Giannis Antetokounmpo, a two-time MVP who's like, what, 26 years old? Defensive player of the year. Defensive still player of the year. I don't, prime, right. like, yeah, I don't care about playoff success at that point. He's 26. It's not like he's 32. There's I, a lot I, of their failures in the playoffs that can be blamed on their coach. A lot of them. A lot. And actually, I think we're going to talk about that later. But I, I think... Yeah, they're going to go all in. There's there's really nothing else to say about this. Milwaukee is going to take whatever remaining pieces they have. Maybe Bledsoe doesn't have much trade value, but but maybe you've got DiVincenzo as a young piece. You've got first-round picks in the future, even if they're not super valuable. Mm-hmm. Like This is what teams going all in do. You package that. You see what you can get. Add another ball handler to that team. Maybe fire Bud. I don't know if they're yeah. going to do that. I don't know if they're going to do that. They seem kind of right. committed to him, interestingly enough. But uh, you make the necessary moves you have to make to go all in and, and swing one more time for the fences because they're You're, just they're not going to trade Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's they would fire Bud before they trade Giannis for like, sure. That that's something that they would do before that. Like that's that's something to consider for all the people uh, making the photoshops of Giannis and Suns jerseys, which <laughs> well, is something I blame, I've done as photo, a joke. But yeah, I don't blame the Photoshop people. They know what drives engagement. You know what drives engagement right. isn't. Look at this DJ Augustine to Phoenix Photoshop I did, you know? Like, that's not what's going to get a thousand <laughs> retweets on Twitter, so. Imagine if we put that in the title of this episode and then we just shit on the idea of Giannis coming to the Suns <laughs> on this podcast. Look, I, I would love it. Of course I would love it. And I would give up a lot just to pair him with Devin Booker, of course. And maybe that would be the best offer. But maybe they could get 
Like, for example, why would Miami, say Miami would trade Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo for Giannis. Uh, I think that's probably going to be just about any offer you can get. Yeah, and like even that is not even close to fair value for But why would they do that? A year before he's a free agent anyway. Like no, there's just, it doesn't make any sense. Right. I think All right. if the Suns did it, it would be a, a Toronto Kawhi type trade where they're saying, Well, he's probably gonna leave anyway. And then at that point, would you wanna do it? Like I, I don't I, I just I love Monty Williams and I don't think he has the power of erasing the the last thirteen years of Suns history from everybody's memory <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, like I don't know. As long as we're entertaining these ideas for superstars, though, we have to also bring up the guys who probably are available. What do you think of Chris Paul? Because that's that's the other name that definitely made the rounds this week. Okay, so I think I'll that's be honest. More interesting. I, I'll be honest. I haven't like realistically considered the idea of Chris Paul and what it would take to get him, but that's well, you, only because sure. the report was by Scoop scoop b (laughs) scoop b i forgot the report was by scoop b that's a great point Um, so i just ignored it mentally i just thought well that's not true then damn well but if it were you know who's actually because you know who's interested in it maybe okay here's the thing maybe the report is by scoop b uh about chris paul to the sun specifically but the report there have been reports about the thunder interest in clearing house that's a definite thing they're interested Mm. in in unloading their cap sheet um, and Presti right. is going to do the whole 2007 rebuild all over again. It's going to be part two yeah. of that. I mean, Billy um, Donovan uh, quitting and the weird Chris Paul video. I don't know if you saw this where he basically said goodbye to the OKC fans all point to that direction, I'd say. Well, you know, so you know what adds a little bit of legitimacy to it, not legitimacy in the sense of like, you know, there's interest to Phoenix specifically, but um, in the sense that, you know, oh, OKC fans yeah. are actually thinking about it. Um, Jacob Niffen of the Uncontested podcast with also with Blue Wire, they cover the Thunder. He approached me. Tell me, what what do you think of this? He suggested a trade. Uh, so here's the thing. Chris Paul makes $40 million, so you have to match salaries, right? The yes, only way the Suns can do that. Yeah, well, if you package Rubio, here's how he phrased it. He was like, Rubio, Ubre, Kaminsky. You'd have to accept Kaminsky's team option, I believe, and then deal him immediately. But those three matches the salaries. So he was like, uh, Ubre, what, what did I say? Ubre, Rubio, sorry, I don't have it in front of me. Ubre, Rubio, Kaminsky, and then swap our 10th pick for their 25th pick for Chris Paul. If the Suns also have a guarantee, because you can create the cap space to do this, if the Suns also have a guarantee from like Jeremy Grant in free agency, right? That oh, like someone's going to come. Some starting caliber power Like Christian Wood, maybe. Or Christian Wood or Davis Bertans. We've talked about all those guys. Okay, and we'll talk yeah. about them more. But but in this case, he said Jeremy Grant. I'm just going to go with Jeremy Grant. Let's say Jeremy Grant says, yeah, I'll sign with Phoenix. And then you still get the 25th pick, which let's be honest, with James Jones, it's like we know from last year that there could be a guy mocked around 25th that he'd be willing to take a 10th overall anyway. So like if you were <laughs> going to take Desmond Bain at 10. Right. Is it even really that much of a drop-off if there's still a chance that he's available at 25 and there are going to be other guys at 25? I don't know. But it's like you go into next season with a starting five in this this specific, purely hypothetical scenario, but this is what the offseason is for, right? You go into mm-hmm. a starting five with Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, Jeremy Grant, DeAndre Ayton, uh, and the bench is a little bit more tricky. You still have Cam Johnson... Uh, you maybe have Darius. You probably have to get rid of Dario Sarge to create the cap space for Grant. You have to get like creative with cap exception rules and veteran minimum yeah. contracts and right. stuff like that for the bench. Right. right. But what do you, What do you think about that? Because I think I I like Ricky Rubio a lot, 
And I feel like I honestly defend Ricky Rubio more than most Suns fans, but there's still a gap. Oh, and it's yeah. a, it's a large gap between Absolutely. what Ricky Rubio did this year versus what Chris Paul did. There's a very it's, large gap there. Look, it's it's not it's not close, and and that's not necessarily a slight to Ricky Rubio. Chris Paul was incredible this season, and don't just look at the raw numbers to figure that out. Just look at the, the effect he had on that OKC team, OKC team in general. I like that idea. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't hate that idea. I'd really have to consider it a little bit more in looking at the actual potential to fill out that bench. But I, I do think that that's the type of team. It, the, we all know the risk here. Chris Paul is old, and he makes a lot of money. <laughs> that's the huge risk yeah. here. Uh, and that's a problem because at some point those two things uh, could converge in a way that makes him a massive negative asset. I think Chris Paul might be the type of player that's still really good until late in his career, but the idea of being good enough to justify that contract is hard. Having said that, we've talked about this year over year now. Finding that good of a player to be on the Phoenix Suns is very, very difficult. And one thing that Chris Paul does that he's done for a long time is he turns any bench unit into a top offense just because that's who he is. He's He's got the ability of doing that. So He's the greatest I, point guard of all time, in, in my opinion. He really I mean, is. And that's a, that's a valid thing to say. It just is with how he's played, and especially this late in his career. Like, there's not been a lot of drop-off. And and you know what never goes away is the wiles, his brain. Like he's able to manipulate the game in so many different ways. Uh, so you know, I don't I don't really hate the idea. It's another guy though that I'm not sure that Chris Paul wants to se- spend the end of his career on the Phoenix Suns, but maybe he yeah, does. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I believe his family still lives in L.A. This is apparently a thing that his family lives in L.A. and it's weird. Like if you're a th- what is he a 33 year old, a 34 year old at this point? How hmm. old is Chris Paul? Something like that. Let me look Something up. like that. But <laughs> it's weird envisioning the idea of this 34-year-old guy in Oklahoma City of all places who like goes yeah. home to an empty apartment because his family isn't there. And 35. He's like, what do, he's like, what do I do? I you know, got to go hang out with Shea Gilchrist Alexander and Darius Basley <laughs> and like play 2K with them. Like, what, what do I uh, do yeah. if I'm the veteran in that position? So on the one hand, it's like, well, this is a guy who probably wants to go back to L.A. But Phoenix isn't too far from L.A. I mean, Steve Nash did the whole thing before, you know? Yeah, and Phoenix... It's, it wouldn't like, be too far. Players like Phoenix. I mean, we've said that before, and it's true. Like, players players live here in the offseason. Uh, you know, it's not something that's completely out of the question. Uh, players have retired here. You know, Charles Barkley still lives here. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where it maybe, maybe he would like it. And, you know, playing with Devin Booker takes a lot of the pressure off you. And I think that... He's very, 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 very good. I, I mean, think he's one, he can he can yeah. still reliably create his own shot at thirty five years old, which is bizarre, and and it's just how how long will it last? It, you know, yeah. I don't think I would do it if I was the GM. You know, I'd say that. Uh, I just but why not? Because, because you don't want the the potential heat from, from no, because like a single knee injury or a single Achilles tear could end his career effectively. And that's, you know, and that's, that's not always the case for guys in their mid twenties. Uh, you know, it's almost never the case. So that's, I think that's enough to, to scare me away. And, and, you know, as good as he's been and as many games as he's played, that's a huge risk. All right. One more guy. Oh no. Russell Westbrook. No, no. Right. (laughs) Absolutely not. All right. Let's move on. Okay. (laughs) Let's get to the idea of 
the Suns in the playoffs once again. If Chris Paul was on the team, it's a guarantee. I can tell you that. You know, and I do think, he, and you know, I'm sorry to go back to the Chris Paul thing, but <laughs> I do think that there is a thing with superstars that exists where the teammates of superstars understand the responsibility of playing with one of those guys. And by that, I mean, J.R. Smith is not going to be effective unless he's playing next to LeBron James at, you know, these last few years of his career, maybe not this year, but you know, when he was effective Uh, or Dwight Howard, for example, like he may not have been like if Dwight Howard signed with the Phoenix Suns and not the, the Lakers, he would probably have been a disaster. And somebody like Chris Paul has that cachet where when they're on the team, even the role players play better. And and the reason I bring that up is because I do think he would have had a positive effect on DeAndre Ayton because DeAndre Ayton now understands I'm playing with a 35-year-old Chris Paul. Chris Paul wants to win a championship. I have to remain accountable to that at all times because he's not going to let me off the hook. So, you know, there is that element of it that's like sort of immeasurable that matters too. And, uh, you know, at some point, maybe Devin Booker will have that, but he does not have it right now. You have to win to have it. You have to, Chris you Paul have to earn the respect of your peers in a way that Devin Booker has not. It's, yeah, exactly. He could get there, but not yet. Yep. All right. So playoffs, the idea of the playoffs. We have three players and the coach that we want to talk about, Monty Williams. Uh, and once again, we're talking about a few different things. And what we're basically covering is how watching these playoffs this year has changed how we feel about even roster building to a point like which of these players do we want to keep or what they will look like if they make the playoffs at some point, hopefully next year, as we say. Um, First player I have listed here, Kelly Oubre Jr. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Kelly Oubre Jr. from a different perspective first. I posted a series of tweets that were polls on the sort of who you would consider the most untradeable players in the Suns. And I just sort of went down the main core guys that play for the Suns. I wanted to see who Suns players considered maybe the most tradable. And out of all of the main guys, which are, you know, Ricky Rubio, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, and Kelly Oubre Jr. Kelly Oubre was considered the most tradable of all of these people. And I have to say, it's kind of funny to bring that up now of all times because watching the playoffs, I feel like Kelly Oubre is the type of player that is super, super, super important in the playoffs personally. But what do you think? How, how do you think Kelly Oubre will, will exist in a playoff team? How, how will he play? I mean, I think it's about mindset, right? Like, yeah, I kind of I kind of see what you're saying. Um, I, I, his energy would be great for sure. But everything about Kelly as his game is right now kind of makes me think that like if you can bring in a different starting power for it, I think this is going to be the conversation that really turns off maybe people who think that Kelly should be the future starting power for it forever and ever. But my idea is that Kelly could still be a great sixth man if he devoted himself to it. And that honestly, where his game is right now, like let's say he doesn't get better from where he is right now, that's the role that suits him best if he's willing to accept it. We've had that conversation before, and I don't really believe that he's willing to accept a six-man role anytime soon, especially not with him going into a contract here next year. Um, But I, I guess the biggest things that bother me about Kelly still is like, you know, if you had to ask me, 
what's the one thing that I want him to improve next year in order for the Suns to be a good playoff team if they do make the playoffs? It's his vision. The problem is, has that ever happened? Like, that's my question to you. Can you give me an example of a player who's like in their fifth year, around 25 years old, 26 years old at that point, who went from like being a low IQ passer to like a guy who fits into a system in the proper way, in that way? Like, has there, has there ever been a guy who just went from one assist per game, which is basically what Kelly's at, or like one and a half, to like a four to five assist type guy who just makes the right reads? Like, there are some things you can improve from year to year, and there are other things that you can't. And, and my worry with Kelly is that the things that he's worst at are the things where it's kind of just not possible. But I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think that the idea of someone improving that much is probably a little unexpected, like or, or just impossible. Like that's probably never happened. Now, I, of course, I'm having trouble thinking this up off the top of my head, but I'm sure there's been scenarios where that has happened, where players have made marginal improvements in passing. Now, here's here's what I'll say. I, I don't I don't necessarily think he needs to be a four to five assist guy to to improve his vision, but just getting up to like a reliably three assists every single game uh, consistently would be nice. Or even if there's enough time on the shot clock and they're clearly going to clog the paint on his drive to the rim and he has got <laughs> no three open, just giving it back to Devin Booker or Ricky Rubio and letting them create yeah. and maybe finding ways to cut off the ball or, or taking advantage of the open three when Devin Booker's driving in. That may not turn into assist, but it's the type of smart read, smart decision where uh, it makes a difference over the course of a season. I just think that the chance of Kelly Oubre becoming a effective player, like a very, very effective player, or even like a marginally effective player, which is where he kind of is now, just getting a little bit better at everything. The opportunity cost of trading him away at this point, in in almost every single case, is not as good as just the idea of understanding how good he's going to be this season and then going into the offseason with that cap space to decide if you want to keep him or spend it on another player. I I've sort of come around to the idea that Kelly Oubre is more important than I've realized to this team going forward because of the chances of him improving than I considered before. And that's from watching the playoffs because the type of guys that are effective in the playoffs are sort of in his mold. I don't think we ever, we talk commonly about the length of Mikhail Bridges. We almost never talk about the length of Kelly Oubre. He's got length too. He's a very long player. And I think he's improved year over year over year, every season of his career. And if he continues to improve, I think that he's the perfect type of player that can, can exist in the playoffs. Now, I don't think we need to spend a long time on what he needs to improve because I think we've talked a lot about that on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But he's got length. He's got tenacity, which I think matters in the playoffs too. And I know that's a little ESPN-y, but it's just true. He's one of those guys that's not going to back down in any scenario, and that matters. He, you have to have balls to be good in the playoffs. Let's just say that. Uh, and I think he's got the right... Like We've talked a lot on the last episode about how guys are just more focused on defense in the playoffs, and that's including guys that not are not always super dialed in in the regular season. And I think he's one of those guys that when he is dialed in, like when he plays against Paul George, he becomes like all of a sudden he looks like an all-star. And when the playoffs happen, if he's dialed in game after game after game, maybe he can look like an all-star again. Of course, he'll be a little less effective against playoff defenses as well. 
But I don't know. I just I'm surprised at, that I came to this conclusion, to be honest. But I do feel like maybe I underrated the importance of what a guy like Kelly Oubre could be. Now that I'm watching the playoffs and and trading him in almost every scenario, you probably won't get back what like the opportunity cost of trading him will not be worth the idea of understanding how he could improve going forward. And that's kind of where I've landed. I, I, it seems like you're not really there with me yet, right? Well, I, like, look, I think Kelly's a great player, and I think no doubt if the Suns make the playoffs next year, like Kelly's going to be a big part of their ability to succeed, right? So like, I'm, in that way, I'm there with you, but it's like when you talk about opportunity costs and the types of things you could get if you traded him, it's like what do the Suns really need to be better uh, you know, like if 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 to go back to OKC for a second, I'm not going to talk about Chris Paul, but like if you could swap Kelly for Schroeder, you know, and you get the third guard that you've been coveting for so long, and who give, also gives you like 18 to 20 points per game, but like the the big key thing there is that he actually passes and can create his own shot in a way that Kelly can't, and you lose some of the defense. I don't know. I just. I don't know. I'm just not convinced. I think there's a way. There's there's ways to. It's not so much that Kelly is a bad player because he's not. He's he's pretty good, but he's not elite in the ways that I expect to be conducive to playoff basketball. I wish I could give a better argument right now, but it's kind of escaping me. It's like, you know, when when I when we brought up Jeremy Grant a few minutes ago when we were talking about this hypothetical where you also get Chris Paul, it's like I look at Jeremy Grant right now, he's now, he's not personally locking down. We talked about this last week. He's not personally locking down Kawhi Leonard. It's part of a team scheme. Um, but he's just locked in constantly on, on Kawhi and has played, I don't know, I just think much better defense than a guy like, say, Kelly would do in the same situation. Yeah, I, I guess in, in a sense, I've sort of come around to thinking that these guys are almost still in a lot of ways undervalued, even when they're not necessarily like Paul George or Kawhi Leonard elite uh, you know, like OG Ananobi is a guy that I've sort of locked in watching the playoffs. And even Lou Dort, you brought up OKC. Lou Dort could not even hit a shot. And his defense was so good that you couldn't take him off the court right. in the playoffs. He right. had but that's to like, play. That's like what Lou Dort does, though. Right. My worry with Kelly uh, here, this is just all it is. My worry with Kelly is the consistency. So it just comes down to if what you're saying is true... And he feeds off the energy of the game and the environment, and he locks in for seven games. Because right now, I think Kelly's defensive reputation among Suns fans is not entirely deserved. I think he has great games, but I think there's a very large gap between what he does on defense and what Mikhail right. Bridges brings to the defensive end every night. So in a league where yes. you play teams, I mean, if the Suns played the Clippers in the seven-game series right now, and they had to mark up both Kawhi Leonard and Paul George... I guess Mikhail would take Kawhi or Kelly would take Kawhi. I don't even know. One yeah. of them has to take Paul George and whoever's getting that assignment, I would worry about. That's all I'm saying. And there are increasingly more teams like that with two wings. If you play Boston and someone has to take Jalen Brown and the other person takes Jason Tatum, whoever gets Jalen Brown might struggle. You know, it's just, yeah. I don't know. I, I think here's a good encapsulation of how I feel about it. The starting lineup that was in the bubble was Ricky Rubio, Devin Booker, Cam Johnson, Mikhail Bridges, DeAndre Ayton. If that was, if the Suns were in the playoffs right now playing essentially every single playoff team, Kelly Oubre would have to start in place of Cam Johnson because he is more suited 
for the playoff environment than Cam Johnson is. Now, I understand that a lot of players, a lot of Suns fans, I should say, are higher on Cam Johnson's defense than they were before the season because he's showed that he's got the ability of rotating, doing things like that. That, that, all, that all is great. I think when everyone's locked in a little bit more, when the effort goes up for every single player a little bit more, then the strength, the body, the length matter a little bit more because those are the type of inches, those are the type of advantages that matter more in the playoffs. And I just feel like at this point, the idea of having a team where you can have Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, and Kelly Oubre, that's huge. And I think that's the type of thing where if you can have those three forwards for a few years now, that matters. And I think if that means that you start Kelly Oubre in the place of Cam Johnson, even though some Suns fans and even some Suns analysts think that maybe you should start Cam Johnson, then I think that might be worth it because I think there's maybe a a drop-off in some places, but the idea of having those three wings for a long time, I think, is something that maybe we have taken for granted a little bit as Suns fans because that is a pretty nice wing core, and you add Devin Booker to that, and he's technically a wing as well. Yeah. That's that's pretty amazing. I mean, look, it's great. I don't don't really think we've taken it for granted. I, I think we're splitting hairs at this point. Well, I mean, and, he's the guy that 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 people think is the most tradable, you know. Right, because but 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 think about why that is. It's because of the roster structure, right? It's like if you want to make a trade for an upgrade, typically the guys you can get who are an upgrade are making fifteen to twenty million dollars, and so you have to give something up in return. The only guys who are there as options are Kelly Oubre or Ricky Rubio. And if we're going to start, you know, an impact conversation about who's impacted the Suns more heavily. Um, I like Kelly, but it's obviously Ricky Rubio. For for the the entire system dies without Ricky Rubio, so that's the only reason that Kelly's in the trade conversations. I think when you talk about those three forwards specifically between Kelly, Cam, and and Mikhail, they're all so close. I think I could make a decent argument for why Cam should start over Kelly, but but honestly, all three of them are so close. One of them needs to pull ahead in the conversation next year, and I don't know who it's going to be, and I don't know how it's going to be, but but one of them needs to pull ahead and be closer to the number three guy, if the Suns really want to go anywhere. That's just well, the bottom line. Yeah, and I think Mikhail Bridges has like firmly played his way into being in that starting lineup. And I think at this point, it's between uh, Kelly Oubre and Cam Johnson. And I think I'm, I'm, on t- I'm on Team Kelly, and I don't want to split people up in this way. But I just think that we maybe, if anything, just to wrap it up and then we can move on. The playoffs have made me learn that I personally have been undervaluing the type of impact that Kelly Oubre not only has had, but can have. And maybe that's on an individual game basis. And I think there are things that he needs to clean up to be more uh, like effective on a, on a day-to-day basis, on a game-to-game basis, the same way that Devin Booker kind of had to do that. He's always been effective in spurts, but he has to be more consistent, and now he is. And I think under the right environment, with the right coach, maybe Monty Williams is that, that type of thing with Kelly Oubre getting better and more consistent, that can make a massive difference. And I think I've undervalued him. And so it's kind of where I've fallen. I think he'd actually be pretty good in the playoffs and maybe better than I, I even realized. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need and you can pause your account at any time. There's no long-term contracts. 
Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means quality candidates will see it fast. Try out Indeed with free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads to totals to team and player coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, divisions, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Next guy, I mean, this guy's made for it. It's Mikhail Bridges. (laughs) I mean, this guy's basically made for the playoffs. I think there is kind of a conversation about where Mikhail Bridges can improve as far as being effective For sure. uh, on, on a playoff team. But what are your thoughts on Mikhail Bridges just as far as uh, existing on a playoff team? No, you said it. I mean, Mikhail could, could, I don't know about start, but he could be an impact player on any current playoff team right now. Like, he doesn't have to change a thing about his game, and he's impacting the playoffs. You said it a second ago, Lou Dort was impacting the playoffs. There's yeah. no doubt in my mind yeah. that Mikhail Bridges, now that he's shooting comfortably, like, 36% from deep uh, that he'd cutting, be just yeah. he'd be fine and cutting he'd be fine in a playoff environment uh, if he didn't add anything to his game that being said you know there are some things that I think he should add to his game do you want to start on that one or should I well I think he still has to become more effective offensively and I think it, right. like if you look at the entire team you can say they all need to get better at shooting threes because threes are like the most effective way to score points in the NBA now. So fair. And of course we would like him to get better at shooting threes. And I think continuing the growth on cutting is vital, but I think with Mikhail Bridges, like I I have faith, all of those things are going to happen. And I think at this point, the most important thing for him is adding strength onto his body, being stronger, being able, because if we're going to play two small forwards, essentially at, at the small forward, power forward positions, they both have to be relatively strong in order to play the different type of teams that you're going to play in the playoffs. And those are the main things that I would consider uh, that he needs to work on. But what, what do you have? Uh, for me, as I watch the playoffs, look, I think sometimes, I think you make good points. First of all, I agree he does need to add strength. When you watch the playoffs this year, sometimes on this podcast, I think we fall into the trap of, of just being like, you know, one superstar is enough. We're like, you know, wouldn't it be great if we just had Devin Booker and surround him with shooters and that's enough. Right. And I think you look at the Houston model and you can see that that's actually, it's not enough. You can you know, you can't just clone Daniel House essentially five times and stick him around James Harden and, and think that that's going to get you anywhere. The most important thing 
that is sometimes overlooked by GMs, and you can see it on every roster that's still in the playoffs to this point, is diversity of shot creation. And this is why we talk about shot creation so much um, and why it's so important to this offseason and why it's important that the Suns add another guard. Right. So that's definitely part of this conversation. But the biggest thing, to get to why this applies to Mikhail, dribble drive penetration is is the next step for him. It's proving that, and adding strength will certainly help it, but you know, it's proving that he can take guys off the dribble. Um, and the reason I'm so confident in his ability uh, to be a great player if he's able to make even like marginal improvements in there is because unlike Kelly, and again, I'm not trying to pick on Kelly, but you know, if Mikhail can add the confidence to drive the ball, you can also be comfortable knowing that he's going to make the right reads to find cutters and find shooters. And, and he's going to play the .5 system very competently. Um, and I have full faith in him to, you know, do all the things that advanced stats guys love, like maintain a good assist to turnover ratio with the ball in his hands and stuff like that. But it's just about having the confidence to finish a little bit better. We know by virtue of him being such a good cutter that he can finish, but now he just needs to do it with the ball in his hands. And when I look again, when I look at teams around in the playoffs right now, Boston had five guys averaging at least five drives per game. This is a stat that the NBA's website tracks. They had five guys averaging at least five drives per game in the regular season. Obviously, Jason Tatum and Kemba, obviously uh, Jalen Brown, but they also had Gordon Hayward. They also had Marcus Smart. You look at a team that they're going to be playing in the Eastern Conference Finals, Miami. Miami had almost five guys averaging at least five drives per game. They had Jimmy Butler, Dragic, Kendrick Nunn, Tyler Harrow, and uh, Bam Adebayo was just under the 5.0 mark, so he just barely missed the cutoff. But you compare this to a team like Phoenix, Phoenix had the best back, maybe not the best backcourt in the NBA, but one of the best backcourts in the NBA this year with a offense that was predominantly controlled by Devin Booker and Ricky Rubio. And if anyone was going to drive the ball, 70% of the time, it was one of those two guys. And then the other 25% of the time, it was Kelly Oubre. And then after that, it was basically no one. And so they, again, adding another guard helps a lot here and not necessarily, you don't necessarily want to put all the burden on Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson to start doing that, especially if they're shooting better, then you don't want them slashing all the time because you want them out there in space as a threat to shoot. But I do think Mikhail specifically, if he's not going to be a guy like Cam Johnson who moves off screens and, and shoots in that way, then the best thing that he can do is add just a little bit more punch to his on ball game uh, offensively. Right. And, and if he can take that next step, I mean, we've said it a million times, Mike, but that's how he becomes like the Nick Batum type, right. you know, third, third best player on a playoff team. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, the thing is about Mikhail Bridges that's sort of interesting to sort of contemplate is that if he's in the game, in the playoffs, he's guarding one of the best players in the NBA. He just will be because a lot of those guys play the guard or forward position and he's built to be able to guard those guys and he's going to have to guard them for 35 to 38 minutes uh, per night or if Bud is coaching like 32 minutes a night. Uh, But the idea of him also being effective regularly on the offensive end is still possible, but it's like it's it becomes like all star stuff at that point. Like it's it's really difficult, and and I do think maybe he can get there, and maybe he can be effective uh, with the ball in his hands a little bit more. It's just pretty tiring to guard the best players in the NBA, and I think that's going to put a lot of pressure on him there. But I think you're right. I think ultimately, if we're talking about a successful playoff team here, that's what it takes. That's really what it takes. It takes guys that are capable of 
of driving on the closeout, cutting at the right times, or even driving and finding other guys. And, we've seen we've seen right. glimpses of that in his game. So I think that I think you're right. I think that's something that he needs to improve, and I think it's something he will improve. Especially, and I'm not talking about if they I'm keep not, guys together. Like I'm not talking about anything crazy. Like Boston, a team right. I mentioned, Marcus Smart is not a great offensive player, but Marcus right. Smart averages five drives per game. That's what I'm talking about. It's like a low number. Like right now, McHale is at like two to two and a half drives per game. I'm asking for him to get within a few years up to five. Maybe next year he gets up to like four or something, you know? It's not like he needs to be a 20-point-per-game scorer because if you're Mikhail Bridges, as phenomenal as that would be if he could be a 20-point-per-game scorer, you know that Mikhail Bridges is impacting the game in so many other ways that he doesn't need to reach that level. For me, it's like, wow, if Mikhail Bridges could be like a 14 to 15-per-game, uh, point-per-game scorer consistently, like, that would be a great player. Like, that is enough for me. And all it would take for him to get there is drive the ball a couple extra times per game. You know, maybe his efficiency goes down a little bit next season because of it. But I think, uh, similar to what we were talking about with DeAndre Ayton, next year, like, right. if DeAndre Ayton commits five, has five turnover games all the time next season because he's put in these uh, decision-making right. uh possessions like that I would love to see that out of DeAndre Ayton similarly if Mikhail Bridges starts driving the ball more and sometimes he turns it over I don't care because it's it's for the sake of development you need to at least try to push him out of his comfort zone and get him to a place where he could be the third best player in a good playoff team right Um, and if it doesn't work it doesn't work but like these are the types of of experiments that we I'm hoping we run a little bit next season yeah, I, I love that, and I love that idea, and I think it's it's an interesting one where they have to balance trying to develop these guys to be effective and trying to make the playoffs because the pressure is going to be on. I mean, we're putting the pressure on them right now uh, with this podcast. We're we're part of that, but I think out of all these guys, out of all the guys on the team, Devin Booker and Mikhail Bridges are the most built for it. They're they're the two guys that you can just look at and say, oh, I can see that. I can Mikhail's see how got, these guys. Yeah, Mikhail's got the highest floor. For sure, I think, of, yeah. of outside of Booker, who's already great. But of everyone else on this team, uh, just talking about what they could do in a playoff setting, Bridges has the highest floor. He could be on any playoff team. No one's right. ever going to play him off the court. You know, you could argue with a guy like DeAndre Ayton right now. Ayton is great against certain teams, but maybe he can't always beat small ball. You know, maybe he doesn't bring the effort on some nights. And so that even even if he has the talent on paper, sometimes he'd be played off the court by virtue of being ah. a center in 2020. I'm not, I, I we had the whole conversation last week. No, we're week. not going to cover that. But we're not going to cover I would... that. I don't think that's something that would happen consistently, but I'm saying it could happen occasionally. With Mikhail Bridges, okay. no one ever plays Mikhail Bridges off the court. You could play him against anyone and he's going to do something. Absolutely. I want to piggyback, piggyback off that point. What we talked about with DeAndre Ayton was essentially, yes, he's good, being switched onto guards in small sample sizes. What we haven't seen yet, what we don't know if he's going to be capable of, is when he's targeted by a guard 20 to 25 possessions in a game, and he has to do it over and over and over and over and over again. The effectiveness, being good at that, is elite-level stuff. Maybe he has it, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he he doesn't have it yet, and maybe he'll have it later. He has it. Uh, you know, I think what I've realized in the playoffs is is we talk a lot about small ball. We talk about um, skill players and stuff like that. But the most important thing in, in the players that you play on the court is mobility. Mobility is underrated. You have to be super, super mobile. And that is something he does have. So a lot of times I watch this and say, okay, I can picture it. I can envision it, especially watching Bam, somebody like Bam Adebayo. He's very mobile. 
Uh, it's just he's got lots of things that he still has to work on. But the reason I said that is, this is the next guy we're going to talk about is Ricky Rubio. And Ricky Rubio, I think is this is going to be a really interesting conversation, I think, with you and I, I hope. Uh, but I don't know what you're going to say here, and I don't know if you know what I'm going to say, but Could something that I kept thinking... I don't know. <laughs> something that I was thinking about is, Ricky Rubio has become a relatively effective three-point shooter. Hell yeah, he has. Shoot. Yeah, I now think that's, that's, that's the angle I was going to take. So That's something that a lot of Suns fans like to point out and like to talk about. But I feel like it's the same thing where, yes, he is effective as a pressure release valve shooter. You mm-hmm. can pass it to mm-hmm. him sort of as the last option. He's willing to shoot it if he's wide open. He does not have gravity... Uh, right. From the three point line, yet he's got none. There's the key word. Gravity. He's got none, and it's here's so and here's what's going to happen in the playoffs if Ricky Rubio's on the court. When Ricky Rubio's on the court, he's not going to be guarded. Still, yes, he might be effective at making that shot, but does that mean we want him shooting thirteen of those in a single game? <laughs> and here's the thing. He still shoots thirteen of those, but now Devin Booker sees an extra guy every single time he's driving. Now, if DeAndre Ayton catches the ball on the post. There's immediately someone there to dig at the ball as soon as he catches it because they don't have to worry about guarding Ricky Rubio. I think that as good as Ricky Rubio has been, and as far as the improvements he's made, and I think he has made some from last season to this season, we saw the problems of playing Ricky Rubio in the playoffs with the Utah Jazz, and I'm not fully convinced that those problems would be gone if he played with the Phoenix Suns. What do you think about Ricky Rubio? No, you're totally right. I mean, the Utah Jazz specifically got rid of Ricky Rubio because he was the point guard that gets you to the first or second round, but you can't you can't get any farther than that with, right? And, you know, they made the grave mistake of thinking that Mike Conley could be the point guard to take them there instead, and obviously he wasn't either. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you're totally right about the concept of gravity. Ricky Rubio this year, he shot, I don't know if it was a career high, but it was it was way higher than it was in any recent season. He shot 41% on catch-and-shoot threes. That is really, really good. I mean, it makes, it makes you think that Ricky would be a guy who maybe they start to respect his shot. But then even in late-season games, you could tell they just didn't. So he shot a higher percentage, but he didn't have gravity. And what gives you gravity is the ability to hit pull-up shots in rhythm. And Ricky is still really bad at those. He shot 21% on pull-up threes this year. He took like one per game, and he just doesn't have it. He doesn't have it in transition. He doesn't have it coming off a screen. He has a slow release. I think, honestly... Yes, that's like, an important part. After watching, you know, every minute that Ricky Rubio has played in a, in a Suns uniform this year, I think we can be honest. I think what helps Ricky a lot is the fact that he arguably travels every time he kind of like steps into a catch-and-shoot <laughs> three. Hop, no, yeah. You know it's true. You know it's true. He he, yeah. he does that little hop. And on a pull-up three, he can't do that little hop. And he has a slow release. And for what you know, for whatever reason, that cuts his three-point percentage in half. But unfortunately, when the Suns do make the playoffs, as good of a transition um, playmaker as Ricky is, it's going to be really hard for the Suns when they get down into half-court mm. offenses. If a team successfully slows the pace down on us and says, mm-hmm. hey, wait, we're not going to let you control the pace of this game. And we're not, because we know you're the number one we know the Suns were the most efficient team in transition um, this season, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. For those who maybe don't know that, there's your reminder that the Suns were the number one most efficient team in their transition offense. And obviously, Rubio was a huge part of that. But when the game slows down, do you really trust him? Um, it's it's a tough conversation. It's another reason why you know who does have gravity 
doesn't just have an efficient three-point shot, but actually mm-hmm. has gravity and is going to be guarded at any spot on the floor mm-hmm. because he's mm-hmm. also the mm-hmm. best mid-range shooter of all time for a point guard, arguably, at least of this generation, it's Chris Paul. So, you know, that's the reason I bring those sorts of things up because it's definitely true. Well, you know who else has gravity? Fred Van Vliet. Oh, yeah, that's a decent he's, point. He's too. also capable of moving off the ball, catching Van Vliet. it like... Like a like a JJ Redick style moving off the ball right. and catching it and shooting. Yeah, my uh, problem with movement. Van Vliet is more that he can't finish. Like, I mean, look, there's a reason Van Vliet's going to make like twenty million, twenty five million dollars, and Chris Paul makes forty. Right? Obviously, right. there's a difference between those two players. Chris Paul has it all. Van Vliet shoots like forty percent inside of five feet, so that's definitely a problem too. But yeah, Van Vliet has the pull up three that I'm talking about, and it gives him actual tangible gravity that is valuable to you in a playoff setting. Even if he never takes a shot. He is valuable to the team with that kind of gravity. That's the, that's the main thing with a guy like Fred Van Vliet. I think if Ricky Rubio is on the team in the playoffs and a, a coach like Spolstra is coaching, not that this is a realistic scenario because that would have to be the finals, but for example, a team like Spolstra is playing. They're not going to guard Ricky Rubio at all when Devin Booker's on the floor. They're going to clog the lane. And here's, here's why that's a problem. That means that Ricky Rubio, in order to be effective, has to have the ball in his hands. Well, in order for the Suns to be their most effective, Devin Booker has to have the ball in his hands. That's a complicated situation where, in in the sense, in the playoffs, you're going to have to split those two guys up as much as possible in order to maximize the effectiveness of both of those guys. That's why I look at Fred Van Vliet and I say, this makes a lot of sense. It just does because he's the type of guy where you don't lose a huge amount on defense from Ricky Rubio to Fred Van Vliet. I do think Ricky Rubio is a better defender than Fred Van Vliet, but I think the reason that both of them are effective is relatively similar. They're both smart. They're both, they both know how to be in the right place at the right time and have relatively low centers of gravity. Uh, Ricky Rubio has a body advantage just being a taller player uh, than Fred Van Vliet. But I just think if there's a scenario where Ricky Rubio essentially plays himself off the court, you put Devin Booker at point guard and you have the right wings around them. Maybe you run the lineup of Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, Kelly Oubre, DeAndre Ayton. That's cool. That's fine. That's great. Not a lot of shot creation outside of Devin Booker. That becomes complicated. Good defense, though, and I still think that that will, that will play some minutes in the playoffs. But I think ultimately... And we've talked about it before. You have to look at some sort of replacement for Ricky Rubio down the road if you want to maximize the ceiling of this team. Obviously, he raises the floor. We've talked about that. But the ceiling, the absolute ceiling of this team in the playoffs, you need someone that can shoot next to Devin Booker and still create relatively well for others like someone like Fred Van Vliet does. And I won't let that go because I do think still this team would be better with Fred Van Vliet on the floor, even if it meant trading Ricky Rubio. I think it would be better with Fred Van Vliet, but I'm still just not quite about him you know because i think what we're saying here is basically to put it simply ricky rubio is on the next good suns team but he's not on the next great suns team and i think you know if our honest evaluation or if our honest expectation of the suns next year it's nothing crazy it would be unreasonable let's say right now it would be unreasonable for us to expect the suns to win 55 games next year and make the western conference finals that would be great it would be a cinderella story but I just want the Suns to win like 42 games and make the eighth seed, you know? And Ricky Rubio can totally deliver that to Phoenix next year. He could totally be on like a 45 to 48 win Suns team too. You know, maybe they surprise people and get up to like the sixth seed. They're still probably going to lose in the first round, you know? So it, yeah. the question of, yeah, do you do need that replacement eventually who can actually be the Suns starting point guard and take them to the second round, the conference finals and beyond. 
if there's any scenario where the Suns could waive all their cap holds, keep Ricky Rubio, keep Kelly Oubre, and still get Fred Van Vliet, that's the scenario where the Suns are at their best. And I know it's hard to say, well, Ricky Rubio won't want to come off the bench. Yeah, maybe he won't. Well, that's... Can you imagine if he did? <laughs> if we're roster baiting right now, imagine if he did. That would be an excellent team. He'd be that's the best also, backup point guard in the that's NBA. That's also coming from the guy who... I will remind you, 20 minutes ago said you don't want the Chris Paul scenario because one injury would destroy the season. You know, this is the thing about deciding, do you want more depth next season for the Suns or do you want to contract and add a third star? No, Um, see, it's not about destroying a single season with Chris Paul. It's about destroying the entire length of his contract where you have no cap space moving forward. I think it's different if 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 you have an injury that ruins your season, you have an injury that ruins your season. If, if you, you sacrifice all injury. flexibility for a career-ending injury on a 35, 36-year-old guy, those are two different situations. Well, it would be it would. Chris Paul only has one year left on his deal after next year, so he's got two years left. So let's say he has that potentially career-ending injury next year. It would be really sorry to keep coming back to this conversation. It would be a really shitty year the year after when you're paying him forty-five million dollars to do nothing, and um, I don't know. You'd survive. I think you'd survive. I want all the wings, Sam. I want <laughs> I want them all on the team next season. I'm there now. I just think every scenario I'm going to try to root for as far as the Suns will include all three of those guys on the team. And I think I've, I'm just at the point where that just makes the most sense for me going forward. All of what we talked about, all of the decisions that will be made as far as these players improving and what they're going to be focusing on are going to stem from the, the players themselves, of course, but also the head coach, the guy in charge of all of us. That's Monty Williams. Monty Williams is the head of the snake. He's ultimately the guy that's going to be making all of the important decisions for this team, not only in the offseason, but if the Suns were to make the playoffs, we've seen coaches become really, really important in the playoffs. All of my betting when it comes to the playoffs is almost entirely based on who's coaching who. Uh, and Monty Williams, I think, is it's actually really difficult to to speculate on what he's going to be like when he's coaching in the playoffs, assuming that happens with the Suns. What are your thoughts on, on that? I think this is fascinating. Like, this is the most fascinating discussion and easily where I've gone wrong the most in this playoffs and where you've been right. You've bet on the coaches who are able to kind of handle the chaos of the playoffs. And I've gone with some of the guys. So here's here's the thing. There's two things that make a great head coach from a schematic point of view. One thing is implementing a system that leads you to success. And oftentimes what we see is there are coaches who implement fantastic, seemingly on paper, airtight systems that allow them to coast to regular season success. And that's how you get great records and teams that have 60 plus wins. There is another aspect of good coaching, though, and what this playoffs and every playoffs really, but especially this one is proving, is that it doesn't matter how seemingly airtight your system is. If you can't handle the chaos of the environment and you can't handle adjustments, it doesn't matter how many Coach of the Year awards you have on your resume, you don't mean shit as a playoff coach. Quite frankly, you don't mean shit and you will lose in an early round, whether it be the first round or the second round or whatever. And mm-hmm. obviously, the, the two guys that I'm referencing the most here are um, Mike Budenholzer. He's, he's getting the most amount of flack. And um, also, to a certain extent, Mike D'Antoni. And these are guys mm-hmm. who have good regular season records, 
led by great superstar players. In the case of Budenholzer, he implemented a great pace and space offense around the MVP. Milwaukee played drop coverage on defense the entire season. They refused to play Giannis as an on-ball defender because they want his length coming, you know, from the weak side. And then they drop Brooke Lopez or Robin Lopez, whichever twin is on the court back. And they didn't adjust in the playoffs and they were destroyed. And Houston has their switch everything propositions on defense that they've been writing for so long. And on offense, obviously, we know what Maury Ball is. And they didn't adjust in the playoffs. And to be fair, they were playing a very difficult team in the Lakers. But I think they could have done better than they ultimately did in that series. Mm -hmm. The coaches who are doing well and leading their team to more success are those who thrive in the chaotic environments. And actually, I'm really glad that we're having this discussion because there was a really interesting article. This is from like three weeks ago, maybe even a month ago when the playoffs first started. It's from 538. Um, and it is from, I saved it right here. So let me make sure I can give the authors a shout out. It is from, apologies if I mispronounce these names, um, Jared Dubin and Krishna Narsu. And it was about the Toronto Raptors specifically. And I recognize before I go into this in, in any more greater depth that the Raptors are also out of the playoffs now. They lost in the second round. But I think we can all admit that the Raptors on paper weren't a very talented team and over-exceeded yeah. um, compared Especially to Especially with, with Pascal Siakam just no-showing for of the course, entirety of the playoffs. Compared to where people expected them to be um, in a post-Kawhi Leonard world, they did very well. They, they went to a seven-game series in the second round. That is a very good performance from them. What this article does, it's from 538, so obviously anytime it's from 538, there's going to be data involved. And what they did specifically is they broke down a couple of things looking at defense, but they looked at, in the first half of the article, how aggressive defenses are, and that's pretty self-explanatory, but the, the real part I want to talk about is the second part, where they talk about this concept of defensive variance. See, what's interesting about the Raptors, in comparison to a team like the Bucks. Mike Budenholzer's entire concept is he's like, we're going to play 82 games of drop coverage. We're going to take this system. We're going to perfect the system so that no matter what opponent we go into, uh, into playing in the playoffs, that system will be airtight. We will be capable of handling the challenges. We will have perfected the system and pushed it to its peak. What Nick Nurse does is quite different. He's taken an adaptive approach where what he does more so, mm -hmm. and, and this is where this article comes into play, the mm -hmm. Raptors will switch on one night. They'll hedge on another, uh, on another night. Then they'll play zone mm -hmm. defense. They'll play a box and one on you frequently. And right. then uh, they'll play drop coverage some nights too. Right. And first of all, the, the important thing to note about that is obviously they have the personnel that's that's built for it. They have yeah. um, lots of different types of defensive players that can kind of handle but that pressure. Smart ones. What this article did is, you find it real quick, it, so in, in regards to variance, this concept of defensive variance is the notion of how likely is a team to switch its defensive coverage, um, coverage from night to night. And it laid out the top 15 teams in modern NBA history that were most likely to change their defensive strategy on any given night. How many of those teams were actually good defensive teams? How many of them actually ranked in the top 10 in defensive rating? The answer is only two. It's this year's Raptors and it's a Miami Heat team from a few years ago. And essentially the conclusion of the article is when most teams change their defensive system from night to night, they're throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks. These are bad defensive teams. Think of the Phoenix Suns from the past several years. They're right. teams that are just trying to right. find desperately. Desperate. They're right. desperate. They're clawing at anything that they think will stick. Toronto is the exception. They are one of the best defensive teams in the NBA. And again, 
I recognize that they're not in the playoffs anymore. But what Nick Nurse bet on and the strategy that propelled his team further than the talent on paper would have allowed is that he did the opposite of what Budenholzer did. He embraced the chaos and he said, we are going to simulate a playoff environment rather than coast to regular season success. We're going to simulate a playoff environment in the regular season by trying as many different things as we possibly can and making as many possible adjustments as we can in the regular season so that it simulates a playoff series feel when you play another team four times in the season and you try a different defensive coverage on them every single night. If you can do that with the level of success that the Raptors were able to do, you can go against any opponent and push them to six or seven games in the playoffs. It doesn't matter what level of talent you have, because at that point you are so comfortable with this, making those levels of adjustments. So to come to bring it back to the original point, the second thing that makes a great coach is how well can you handle those adjustments? How well can you adjust to the chaos of the bubble environment, the chaos of the playoff environment? And I think you'll find that it's not just the Raptors. The reason the Miami Heat uh, exceeded expectations and are now in the Eastern Conference Finals is because they do the same thing. They frequently right. do things like play zone coverage and they do right. weird things on defense and that Spolster forces them to do. I think the Boston Celtics are a similar team as well. And so all of these teams that are succeeding in the playoffs, it's not just because they had a good regular season system. Point five is Monty Williams's thing. That's the thing that he's leveraged, you know, his legacy, not his legacy, but his reputation with the Suns as a coach so far on. And it's a very good system. It led the league in assists in year one behind, you know, Ricky Rubio and Devin Booker. And by all accounts, it is a good offensive system. But where the Suns can work and where we truly don't have an answer until Monty Williams finally makes the playoffs is how does he handle uh, the need to make adjustments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the critical thing that's going to determine if he's a great coach or not. I think he's a good coach. I think he can have regular season success. But if Monty Williams can make those adjustments in the playoffs, then he's a great coach. And if he can't, then he can't win a championship with him. Straight up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, that was fascinating. Um, thank you for breaking that down. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that article. That's really interesting. And I think it's true. I think the coaches that, the playoff coaches, that are most willing to make changes and try things in the regular season are coincidentally the most willing to try things and make changes in the playoffs. And that's something obviously Nick Nurse did. Uh, Eric, Spolster, Eric Spolster did. And, and as you said, Bud uh, refused to do. And even going as far as saying, this is what God is here. Why would we change anything? Now, what I think is especially hard as far as evaluating somebody like Monty Williams is that one, the guys that he's coaching are relatively young. Kyle Lowry, 33 years old, Pascal Siakam, 25. Like that's, that's an exception. Uh, but then you have guys like Serge Ibaka, 30, Mark Gasol, 35. Uh, there's a lot of guys that are like older savvy defensive players that you can build around with the Toronto Raptors. Whereas, uh, you know, Monty Williams steps into the his role on the Suns, and he's coaching a 23-year-old Devin Booker that's had no stability uh, o- over any point of his career. He's coaching Kelly Oubre, who played on a disastrous Washington Wizards team uh, for years and now has to figure out exactly what to do with Devin Booker and the Phoenix Suns uh, in essentially his first full season with the team. He's, he's juggling all these things where I think if you look at what he's done so far, there's been a lot of scenarios where he has made adjustments. And to his credit, he's tried some weird team, weird things this season. Uh, some to no success, like Aaron Baines and DeAndre Eaton started. <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. And some to, to minor success, like the Suns actually did deploy a zone 
uh, throughout the season uh, multiple times. Not every team does that. seems like it's more yeah. common now than it was, say, three or four years ago. I actually but, looked up some stats on that, too, so I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and, and so I do think he's willing to try things, but I think there's a weird scenario with him where he also has to juggle just getting these guys to really buy into the concepts of the system that he's trying to implement for the Suns. And I think this is what's so important about continuity. If you have continuity year over year, once the players that you have, the main players, the core players, understand the system, then you can start throwing wrinkle after wrinkle in. And over time, that's how you develop a system like Miami, where players can just step in and uh, Spolster can coach them right up and they're prepared to do all these crazy things. Or, Or with Toronto, where Nick Nurse can get them ready to do all these crazy things. And I think the preparedness... Making sure your players are prepared is one of those things that's that's really vital for guys like uh, Nick Nurse and Spolstra, and that's a, that's a version of communication. Uh, and I also think we're t- we're throwing guys under the bus. If we're going to throw other coaches under the bus, maybe we should start talking about Doc Rivers as well. <laughs> we'll see how yeah, well, well see he does. They, we'll see if they blow Game Seven. But um, you yeah. you hit the you hit the nail on the head continuity is what it's about because because it would be unreasonable that's exactly what you said it's a bunch of 23 year olds 24 year olds on this team year one was about solidifying 0.5 offense again you know if you're Devin Booker and it's your fifth coach in five years it's easy to just tune him out so they needed to see a little bit of success first before they even worry about the playoffs but now that those ideas are hopefully solidified in the minds of these players it is one reason to go with the argument of hey let's just run it back next year And, and you know you still need to I'm going to be clear. I don't think the Suns can just run it back next year. I think there's still ways for them to add talent, even if they take that approach. But getting some continuity and and not having the sort of disastrous roster turnover that this team has had year after year, um, there is an argument there that that could be very helpful to this team getting into the playoffs. That's a great point. And even if this team doesn't have, you know, maybe the talent on paper that you would like next year, if you just add a couple of extra role players, give it some extra depth and run with the same crew, but give them the continuity and the chance to try different things. They've got 0.5 down. Now let's try different things. Yeah, maybe they maybe they would exceed expectations that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the advantages of building your team out with guys that are in their sort of lower or mid 20s is that there's still a possibility of just sort of systemic improvement where guys that can just improve within the system because right. they're still young and they could still get better at basketball. So, you know, that that is a great point. But Now, keep in mind, you know, Monty is great, but an organization is more than just its head coach. And do yeah. you trust the team that just sold its G League franchise to yeah. properly Three handle assistant coaches are gone. Yeah. the development of, yeah, I mean, it throws all of that stuff into question again. It's always it always comes back to will Robert Sarver uh, screw screw <laughs> so all of us uh, or, or not? Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that's something. Obviously, we're going to watch going forward. But I think what this has done, what this conversation has done, and for you and I, I think, but also for any Suns fan listening, it has given us a lens to view next season through that maybe would have been unrealistic before. And maybe it's still unrealistic for next season. I think a lot of it will depend on the offseason. But now we can watch these players and sort of see the improvements that they're making and try to understand how that will affect the playoffs going forward. Maybe that'll help us uh, affect how we make predictions as well. But now Monty Williams as well. See if he makes any adjustments. See if he makes any changes. Um, Now, all of this has gotten me very, very excited about the idea of the Suns making the playoffs. So I can just really cross my fingers and hope that they make the right moves this offseason 
to do that. Do you have any other thoughts before we end this one? Well, I'll just say, given the takes that I see on NBA Twitter, people talk like it's always funny to me how people on NBA Twitter. I've been on Twitter for a couple years now, and I was on Reddit for been on Reddit for close to a decade. But it's always funny, like this kind of elitist view that people on Twitter hold of of Reddit. And then I read some of the reactionary takes on Twitter <laughs> right now during the playoffs. Like, I think for us as Suns fans, let's say the Suns do make the playoffs next year. We're going to still be the scrappy upstart underdog team where it's kind of fun. Like, people are just happy that the Suns are in the playoffs. So I think the, a lot of the heat is going to be off. But I feel for these teams, and I do worry about, like, what if it's, like, year three or four and Devin Booker just can't get over the hump? Like, people are being brutal with someone like James Harden right now, man. Talking the way they talk yeah. about James Harden's legacy, like I saw a yeah. take. This this one is from our friend Josh Everly, who who I respect a lot. But he he posted a poll: Who would you rather have next season? Who who provides more value to your team if you could choose next season? James Harden or Jason Tatum? And a couple hours since the poll, I looked at it, and it was Jason Tatum was winning like sixty to forty. And I don't think this was some like Celtics Twitter brigaded it, but I think it was just like people coming in with ridiculous well, takes. People like, hate James Harden. I know. Uh, well, someone <laughs> someone actually put in the comments, you could have made it Hitler versus Harden and Hitler would have won, which might be true. But uh, but it's just, you know, some of those takes that come out around playoff time. Suns Twitter is actually, I think, a, a, a fairly robust community. It's definitely a passionate community. Nobody can argue that. But do we have, after a full decade of missing the playoffs, do we actually have the mental fortitude to handle some of the takes that could be coming our way? Uh, and not explode and go insane. I don't know. I question it sometimes. Yeah. There's it's a chance be fun, that though. I'm suspended from Twitter if we ever make the playoffs. You definitely <laughs> are going to be suspended. You are 100% going to be suspended. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, who knows what we'll be talking about at this point. Something interesting, I hope. It's really difficult to gauge. I'm so sorry to, to interrupt you. Do you mm-hmm. mind if I pee? <laughs> no, that's fine. Really quickly. I have to pee so badly. Okay, I, no, I, go I, ahead and do that. I figured I would cut you off where you said, and that's Monty Williams, because you could like gather your thoughts afterwards. Okay, yeah. I'll be right back. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. 
at hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.